Pop Culture Affidavit presents... It Came From Syndication! Episode 6, Drama, Action, Sci-Fi, and Horror. Make it so. We are best girlfriends. Hello and welcome back to Syndication. This is the sixth episode of It Came From Syndication, a pop culture affidavit miniseries that is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm Tom Panneries, and I'm going to spend my time here offering up a retrospective of what you could find on syndicated television in the 1980s and early 1990s. Each episode will focus on a different television genre, and I'll try to give as thorough of a look as possible as to what was on TV back then. This is the penultimate episode, and I'll be covering a genre, well, really a genre that's kind of an umbrella term that several genres lie underneath, uh, and that is the category of, quote, drama. And now I say this is an umbrella term because drama is a term that can describe shows that aren't comedies but are fictional. So they are soaps, they are cop shows, they are, well, kind of your geek triumvirate of sci-fi, fantasy, and horror. And man, oh man, there are a number of great shows to talk about here, especially in that sci-fi, fantasy, horror area. And uh, to do this, once again, I'm not alone. I can't do this alone. Joining me is a guy who has been on my shows a number of times. He is a luminary in the podcasting world. Please welcome the host of Views from the Long Box, as well as a number of other shows, my very good friend, Michael Bailey. How you doing? There ain't going to be a rumble without, a rumble without me, Tom. You're not going to talk <laughs> about syndicated television without roping me in at some point. Because we're going to do this for Johnny, man. We're doing it for Johnny. <laughs> No, thank you very much. Um, now, now we get to further talk about the fact that in the uh, late '80s and early '90s, I did not have much of a social life. <laughs> That's one of the points I'll make later when I talk about like why these shows were on these stations and stuff. But before we get to that, um, something I covered in the very first episode of the series was uh, my syndication experience, and that like you know the channels I was watching and and what was on what show you know what was on what channel and or like you know being in the new york area like where you could find all these shows and then amanda provided the same information being uh having grown up in northern virginia right outside of washington dc so where um you grew up in uh in pennsylvania i believe uh very close to philadelphia where uh so what were you what were you watching um in terms of stations channels like what did you get Okay, so much like when you say, uh, you know, I, I I live in or near a city, mm-hmm. you don't actually most of the time live in the city. So yeah. when I say I grew up in Allentown, it's not like we were living in Allentown. We lived in West Coastville. Now, my wife will insist up and down that it's all one town. 
where I grew up. Uh, I argue if there's a post office that, you know, it's a different township or borough or whatever. Uh, But I grew up in a little postage stamp called West Coastville. And because we were near Allentown, we were roughly two hours from New York City and roughly two hours, if I'm if I'm remembering this correctly, roughly two hours from Philly. So we were kind of equidistant. And because of that, the cable company that we had when we moved back to the Allentown area in 1986, uh, since that's the time period roughly that we're covering, yeah. uh, Service Electric Cable TV, which, if again, if I'm correct, was the first cable company in the United States. Uh, they they filmed a lot. They showed a lot of polka. Uh, in fact, on Channel One, you could see polka every <laughs> night around seven o'clock. But because of that, we got on our package for whatever reason the what would become the Fox affiliate. Yeah. Uh, so we had Channel Five out of New York, uh-huh. and we had Channel Eleven WPIX out of New York. And we got Channel 9 WOR. Yes. And then from Philly, I don't remember what channel their Fox affiliate eventually became. Uh, But Channel 29 was the other kind of syndicated. And that, when I went back in 97 uh, for my 21st birthday, I went to visit a friend. And apparently 29 became the WB uh, Mm -hmm. station. Uh, but, you know, it's just like, so between that, and, and I know we're not talking about sitcoms and stuff like that, so between that, I saw a lot of reruns of different shows, and you could actually kind of plan out which which channels you were watching, depending on which package they were going through. And there was a time when I was in high school that I could literally watch four, two straight hours of Night Court a night. Yes. Because, like, Channel 5 would show it, and then one of the Philly channels would show it. And they were on different seasons, but it was still watching Night Court, which is, to me, the greatest sitcom of the 80s. Night Court is an amazing sitcom. Night Court is, I think it's slightly underrated, or it doesn't get the recognition it deserves at the moment. Um, We used to do that with The Simpsons when I was in college, because we were on... Um, it was, I don't remember if it was junior or senior year, but, uh, we picked up both the Baltimore and Washington DC Fox affiliates and they would run the Simpsons. So we would get like an hour and a half of the Simpsons every night <laughs> and just switched over. And sometimes they were airing the same episode and sometimes it was a different one. So that was always a treat. Yeah. Um, yeah. WPIX would eventually become the, the uh, WB and then eventually uh, is currently the CW. Uh, WOR would become the UPN affiliate. Yeah, because I remember them showing uh, Voyager, Voyager. Yeah. Uh, when it when it premiered. That's what that's the channel we watched that on. Yeah, and I don't know what they are now. To be honest with you, it's been, it's been a while. It's they were that my my TV and that's me TV. So there's, there's different. Um, yeah. Because when, when the C when, when UPN and the, de- Upen, <laughs> duh, there, there's a, there's a generation of children that will either get really nostalgic or if you're a little older, like we were, will vomit profusely somewhere when they 
picture all the kids in the day glow in the dark stuff yelling oop in between <laughs> the incredible hulk and that uh that one with the uh, monkeys in space but they're 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 um when when the C, when wb and upn became the cw it's like the leftover channel became my whatever city they were in yeah cuz we had my atl mhm and then it became like peach tree something like peach trees it it changed but yeah it, yeah, it the, went to that yeah they've all kind of gone in different directions it almost became a syndicated type of superstation type of thing again that mm-hmm. never really never really caught on to the level that something like uh, some of these other ones did. Um, now, I, I talked about uh, a little bit but that um, we're going to be talking about drama, and I use drama as an umbrella term because, um, you know, I've talked about comedy. I've talked about your sort of info infotainment, as I call it, and game shows. And, and drama is where I'm kind of taking that Emmy category of outstanding drama, which can encompass anything that's like usually about an hour long uh, with a few exceptions, it is not technically a comedy, and but um, but most of it, as I remember, as as we a lot of us recall, um, was action, science fiction, horror, and fantasy. It was this sort of um, it was and and I was I was looking at what was on network at the time versus what would be in syndication at the time, and and I really saw a lot of um, stuff that was geared like almost specifically toward us in terms mm-hmm. of our, our like our, our nerd nerdy tendencies and our love of things like comic books and superheroes and science fiction and things like that and and I, and I just on a on a whim I went through the list of the outstanding drama name nominations and wins uh, through the 80s and into the 90s up until about the mid 90s and there were five television shows that kind of circled around that uh, that um, sci-fi, fantasy, horror uh, genre that got nominated for Outstanding Drama Series, none of which won. Um, Twin Peaks was one of them, which kind of toes the line because it's David Lynch and it's not really science fiction, but it's kind of... But Beauty and the Beast, the Linda Hamilton, Ron <laughs> Perlman show, that which... which which was more of a soap opera romance show, but it had some fantasy elements, kind of like Once Upon a Time. Yeah, but it was covered by Starlog, so yeah. it, 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 you, yeah. you get your sci-fi cred there. Yeah, that got nominated twice. Quantum Leap got nominated three years in a row for Outstanding Drama Series in 1990, 91, and 92. Of course, The X-Files got nominated four times, in the mid to late nineties, ninety five through ninety eight, and then the um, then the only syndicated television drama, and I'm going to go out on a limb and say I think this is the only syndicated series to ever be nominated for an outstanding Emmy category, was in 1994. Star Trek: The Next Generation was nominated for outstanding drama. Um, in its final season, it was the only syndicated show ever to be nominated in that category, and um, and, and I don't I, I'm I'm I'm, I'm going to say something that's going to sound offensive to um, fans of these types of shows, but if you look at what was on network at the time, which was a lot of you know you had stuff like L.A. Law and you had Hill Street Blues and Cagney and Lacey, Thirty Something, um, China Beach was nominated a few times. You had these shows that we used to watch, the shows that we're going to be talking here, they're kind of the B-level 
of stuff and and science fiction and and horror and fantasy and and some of the, even some of these action shows in movie levels they were kind of a b level thing and and I think it's because um it was a way like a lot of these appealed to slightly younger demographics that didn't, that that didn't necessarily always have the most um staying power whereas mm-hmm. network shows tend to skew a little older um you know and and uh, because they, there's more consistency among those demos and things um it would take the wb to figure out really how to hit that sweet spot of that like was it 18 to 24 target demo or whatever they call it um and then uh you know the you were kind of, and they were they were on at weird times too. They were on at like Saturday afternoons or Saturday evenings or Sundays when those of us who really like to watch them hadn't really nothing better to do with our lives at the point. And as you kind of jokingly said, but um, I do want to make a point that as 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 much as I use the term B level, and I'm not trying to use that disparagingly, there's something about some of these genres that have always been slightly on the forefront or cutting edge. Of certain formats, probably out of necessity. So I think about like how many horror and sci-fi movies, especially horror movies, made their way onto VHS in the early '80s because it was like the only way they were going to be seen. Yeah. Um, and these shows that were off network, they were not on the big three, then the big four, especially the big three. In a way that now we have a lot of shows of these genres that or just in general that are now popular that are on that are off network they are on cable networks they are on streaming services and things and this is sort of that first wave of let's throw this against the wall and see see what sticks and then you know we could this is a whole their podcast whole their podcast episode but we could talk about how a lot of the shows that were of this genre and persuasion were um online early not for streaming but for discussion you know, people were discussing a lot of shows like this in forums and news groups and things before it really went mainstream. So, well, I, I think really, you know, you you hit on a lot of of things there, but I think it could be kind of wrapped up into the fact that our generation, which is now getting progressively older, because that's how time works. We're in our forties. Uh, yeah, we're in our forties now. But our generation was the first generation to really be targeted in syndication in terms of animation. Mm-hmm. So when when because really and truly syndicated television in the '60s and '70s and even throughout the '80s uh, was mostly reruns of network stuff. Like USA had the Cartoon Express. Uh, in the early 80s. And that was showing, like, old Hanna-Barbera stuff. And I remember as a, as a little kid watching, like, um, the 60s Gantry Lawrence Marvel stuff in syndication. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then on Saturday mornings you had your, your mainstream stuff. But I think with the rise of shows like He-Man and G.I. Joe and Transformers and... Uh, you know, Voltron and these things that, uh, you know, the idea of first run syndication was a new concept uh, or a newer concept by the time we were little kids. So that when we're getting a little older now, that medium has opened up a little more and advertisers and stations have figured, oh, heck, we can we can play these at weird times. So it's not network. 
And the great thing about it not being network is that you got shows lasting far longer than they would have on a network on on NBC on ABC. Uh, I would say Fox, but I think that goes without saying. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in, in, in any case, the fact that Nightman, which started in '97, only lasted two years in the heyday of syndication, shows you what a POS series that was. Yeah, and um, and it's, I think it's something I brought up when I was talking to Amanda about cartoons was that you know people remember saturday morning cartoons as this thing but if when you really start breaking down the individual cartoons that you have memories of they tend to be the ones that were aired at in the after school block or the before mm-hmm. school block and syndication part of it was because they were on every day and when you're a kid they were i mean like if you didn't have any sense of um know when enough is enough so it was like being fed candy so like you know they would rerun the same they could you know how many times i saw that original gi joe miniseries they did before they finally did kind oh, of yeah. that full i mean they would rerun the crap out of that and you'd watch it every single time and it and and by the time you got tired of those that spate of episodes they would either put new ones out at starting season or you had moved on to another toy mm-hmm. um you know and, and they would start to fade but you're right it was um we were that fir- sort of first generation where they started to really understand that um especially with cartoons that we would sit and watch it and then so what a lot of these shows have and i talked a little bit about the uh, the demos but the time these a lot of these shows came around and a lot of the ones we're going to talk about um aired starting in the late 80s into about the early to mid 90s and i think by the time the wb and the upn network come around that starts to kind of kill syndication in a way yeah because there's not a lot of airspace for it and then the, the cable really does start to make a huge um you know, cable had been around since the early 80s, but cable becomes standard, and then original cable programming really gets its legs into the 2000s, especially when I want to say that shows like, at least at first, shows like The Sopranos and Sex in the City on HBO become um, so huge that other networks that are not the pay TV networks realize that um, you know, we could probably produce some shows like this, and they they eventually do find their footing with stuff like you know AMC finding their footing with The Walking Dead and Breaking Bad and Mad Men, etc. Or you can go back to like The Shield on FX. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, and then reality as well. Reality yeah. television was another thing. So cable cable networks started to really eclipse that. And now we're in a totally new age with Netflix and Hulu and everything. But um, uh, the thing I did when I when I talked about sitcoms was I broke the sitcoms down into three categories, and I said there were reruns. Um, and these are, and I mean, you and I probably watched a metric crap ton, to steal a phrase of yours, of sitcom reruns mm-hmm. when we were kids. And it was just stuff that had been off the airs, in some cases for decades. I mean, our generation probably knows every single episode of The Brady Bunch, even though that show went off the air before we were even born. Yeah. Um, and uh, so the same thing was true with drama. I mean, you had, and, and they, they, would, they would put a lot of the action-adventure science fiction shows on the air in the 
later afternoon, probably after cartoons, maybe because some of the little kids would stick around for Charlie's Angels, The Six Million Dollar Man, Wonder Woman, um, reruns of, of the Batman, the 66 Batman TV show, um, The Incredible Hulk, mm-hmm. uh, Magnum P.I., you know, like, uh, name a 70s cop show they also put on the air, like, you know, I would there would be Columbo, Kojak, Beretta, Quincy, you know, like, all these different shows. And I don't remember watching... I remember going kind of through streaks of watching some of them and then not watching some of them. Um, the sitcoms were more my jam. But did you did you remember a lot of the specific ones oh, uh, that you would I, see? I had three older sisters, so Little House was, was mm. a big thing. And we would watch that yes. all the time. You know, I knew that was a network show. We never watched a single episode live. Mm-hmm. Uh, the closest we came is I remember when the last episode, which I think aired in 1984. Uh, I remember for a while. The, I, I remember the advertisements for it because they blew up Walnut Grove, uh, mm-hmm. which I thought was a little extreme. But <laughs> but no, um, Little House was, was, was on perpetually leading me to know more about that show that I think most males my age would, uh, and, and 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 the weird episodes they would do. I if the Hulk was on, I was watching it. Uh, even even going into the '90s, and in the summer of '91, PIX Channel 11 started showing that in the like late morning, early afternoon, and I would come home because I had summer school that summer, and I would come home and watch the Hulk. Uh, it- it was a block, I think they called it, like, the Lunch Bunch or something, because they paired it with Jump Street for that, a little while. But you also yeah. had, and this is something that I say to certain people, and they have no idea what I'm talking about, Bowling for Dollars. Yes. Which was this, this like, game show that was live, but to get you to watch it, they would, they, like, they had theme weeks. Like, one week they showed this Frankenstein miniseries that was really good. Uh, that was actually where I saw all of the live-action Spider-Man shows for the first time. Hmm. What was was one week, that's all they showed, and it was the summer, so I was home. But I remember watching The Fall Guy, and we didn't yeah. get the $6 million man too much, or the Bionic Woman. Wonder Woman would pop up. Uh, Magnum P.I., like you were saying... Uh, the Brady Bunch was on, but it seemed like at some point the Brady Bunch went to, like, TBS. It might have. And we didn't get TBS in the North, uh, which was weird, uh, where we were, at least. We never had a TBS affiliate until uh, much later. And then it was weird because for most of the 80s, TBS started their shows at, like, 9.05. Yes, that was so odd. Uh, and you know, outside of showing the Beastmaster constantly, <laughs> uh, but once you got it, and, and what I liked watching was when they would do reruns because my mother liked the show of things like Saint Elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, I watched a lot of Saint Elsewhere uh, just because, again, it was my mother's favorite show, and it's so funny to me that David Morse 
through the 90s reinvented himself as an actor and he's in all these tough guy roles like he's one of the soldiers in the rock mm-hmm. and uh you know and he he was the 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 big badass guard in the green mile and all i can think of is my mom had she lived to see this would have been like what did they do to boomer because uh, she loved him on that show but the, the thing about those is that it really... Oh, Rockford Files was on. Yeah. Quincy. Yeah, I remember. Because yeah. mom loved Quincy and mom loved the Rockford Files. So, yeah, those those would be two things that were on. And every Hawaii five zero every once in a while, too. And every once in a while, someone would run The Greatest American Hero. Yes. Uh, but then Cable kind of came in in the early 90s, early to mid-90s, and, and took over for that. Yeah. Because I was homesick the first day the Sci-Fi Channel had its first full day of programming. And their afternoons were Incredible Hulk, Six Million Dollar Man, Bionic Woman, and then some other sci-fi superhero type show uh, all throughout it. So it was just, so it became, as the syndicated channels started showing more uh, original fare to syndication, mm-hmm. it's like the cable channels started picking up the slack. Yeah, and the cable channels before reality television kind of took over that slack needed to fill airtime like mm-hmm. crazy. And and that was the case. Like, I remember 90s Sci-Fi Channel was where I watched V for the first time since I was young. You know, because they ran, they ran the original miniseries, the final battle, and then I dropped off somewhere through the syndicated, the one season of the syndicated show because it was just. I think they. I thought that was a network show on NBC. It was. It was. But oh, it was. I'm sorry, I said syndicated. I meant uh, regular series. Oh, okay, yeah. I, I was, was just. I, I, were we saying the, the word syndication so much? I, I, I got my <laughs> wires crossed. Yeah, the regular series on NBC, and they either they either stopped airing it at one point and they just kind of changed their programming they you know whatever or they um or i stopped watching it for because it was either bad or it was i was in college at the time so i might have had other things to do um but i just i remember you're right where they um like fx's fx and tnn at one point were running like the dukes of hazard and fx was running this block of stuff like the a team and um, other some other '80s action shows as well because I think they honestly didn't have anything else to run, so they could run what they got their hands on. This like the original Toonami was mm-hmm. all these old like a lot of the old um, shows that we used to watch when we were kids, and they eventually kind of branched out. Um, and I think now now they kind of all fill their their holes with um, either reruns of really crappy movies um, and or uh, or reality television. Um, and, and not just to just to kind of go off on a quick tangent. If you want to see what a sad state of affairs something has become, check out the lineup for MTV on a weekend. It's like white chicks for twelve hours, and I don't mean like <laughs> I mean the movie that movie white chicks and stuff like that. It's like and I or like it's just it's stuff that like you know where I'm like you know back in the day you used to basically run the real world for twelve hours, and I used to kind of be like all right, how many times are going to see the real world, but it's kind of weird how like cable television it's almost like they can't they just they're kind of going the same way where they're just kind of like turning well, everybody off 
and the, and the the other funny thing is is now a lot of channels like Ion, which I believe is uh, I really want old people to watch this network uh, because and I realized that one I was becoming old and two that shows that I liked were geared towards old people because we'd watch I mean Leverage is different because I think Leverage skews younger but it's just mm-hmm. like it's uh, Ion and We and these other and, and Oxygen uh, and, and USA even to a certain extent they don't do like at 8 o'clock they're going to show this show and then at 9 o'clock they're going to go this show they, and, and We has gone all out you binge watch so, yeah. like, today, we're recording on a Sunday, we is showing nothing but Monk. Hmm. So, you blow through, like, the entire series. Yeah. Uh, and and, it, and it's kind of funny, because in the era we're talking about, it was at 5 and 5.30, Night Court, 6 and 6.30, different strokes... And then they would go into you know the the late night or a movie or whatever. But you would you would yeah. you would cycle through these things. So, whereas now, you know, you just watch you know huge chunks of it because of things like Netflix. Yeah, because that's made it acceptable. Yeah, and some of these series are not meant to be binge watched. You know, like I mean, it's it's all it's almost like to take it back to comics. It's almost like trying to read a ton of an 80s Marvel series or um, or something in mm-hmm. like one huge chunk versus uh, something Brian Wood wrote, you know, which, uh, or Brian Michael Bendis wrote, no, no offense to Bendis, but like, you know, there, those are car, those are comics that you can read. I could, I can blow through a trade of that in an hour mm-hmm. as opposed to, um, I was, I have, I, I picked up a trade of old, what if comics, uh, for in the five dollar bin recently, and I can't read like the one issue takes me a while to get through, and that's how I feel about some of these shows. Like you know, um, I don't know if I could. There's not you can watch ma- a few episodes of Magnum in a row, but it's like you know after a while, it's like you know, and there's such one and done episodes that yeah. they were never really designed to be season long story arcs. Whereas if I finish an episode of The Flash, I can go right into the next episode and the story continues. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was more episodic. Uh, yeah. Had, quote-unquote, mythology episodes. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and this was really what, for the most part, what the syndicated shows we're going to be talking about did. Uh, because sometimes there would be storylines that carried through, but now when a television series, and I, and I think this is where to go off on a brief tangent, I think this is really where modern television in America is becoming more like television in the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, and where the the American model was 22 to 25 episodes a season. Yeah. And you had your slots and you filled it. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you're doing a continued story, Buffy the Vampire Slayer notwithstanding, or other shows like it, or Smallville, or things like that, I think what you prove, what what eventually happens is, you have your ongoing season-long story arc, and eventually that gets tired. 
you don't want to blow your wad, so you do the, okay, we're going to do the flashback episode where it's a story from the 30s and all the cast members are different characters. Yeah. Or it's one of those Freak of the Week episodes that, yeah. you know. <clears throat> the, there, there was an episode of Supergirl, I think it was this... It was either the, I think it was early this season. We were sitting there watching it, and it was basically an episode of Smallville. <laughs> uh, just, just in the way it was set up, and, and everything that went on with it, and, and it was, it was Kara and Alex in high school, basically, and they were using their power. And she was using her powers to kind of solve a mystery, and you know, even Chloe Sullivan was involved because. They were exchanging emails with Clark's friend from high school, Chloe, who was giving them uh, information and all that. But I watched that episode, I go, this has nothing to do with the ongoing story. Mm -hmm. This has nothing to do with with the, the thing they're setting up, but they needed a breather episode. Whereas I think really where American television is going to eventually go is either the smaller season model or you're going to have two stories in a season rather than one. Yeah. You're seeing the story, the smaller season model with cable and Netflix more Mm -hmm. often now than you are seeing with the major networks. Uh, For instance, about a couple weeks ago, uh, a show that Amanda and I first binged and then had to get used to watching from week to week because we'd binged all five seasons and the sixth season premiered was The Americans. The Americans just finished up its last season and there were only 10 episodes in this season. And there were about 10 or 13 episodes in every season. And it made for a tighter show. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and The Americans is just an amazing, it was an amazing show. But Mad Men did the same thing. Mad Men would be... I don't know. I, I don't know how many, but it was never. It was rarely like a twenty. It was never like a twenty-four, twenty-five episode season or anything. Whereas you have the Flash and Supergirl, Riverdale, uh, which is another show that we're watching, um, that has these long seasons, and they're still trying to figure out how to how to crack that code. And I think part of it might be the revenue model for the networks, um, you know, or, or whatever, whatever reason, you know whatever old way they're stuck in with the networks in terms of some of these dramas. Um, because I think with like an NCIS... Or yeah, I was about to mention NCIS, actually. Yeah. I think you could do a 22-episode se- season of a show like that because it's it's not... I don't want to say the word... The formulaic sounds so insulting, but it's... It being that it's a cop show, it's a procedural, and you could you can do that... Um, we have a case of the week, but we have an overarching thing. Yeah, exactly. And it works very well. Yeah, NCIS especially, which is a show that Rachel and I got into, but never live. Mm-hmm. We would always watch it on USA, and it was always like three seasons behind. And now Oxygen runs it like all day long on Thursdays. Uh, and, 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 and the thing that I liked about it is that you did have the case of the week, but you could pepper in, like in the second season, or no, it's the first season. Because Kate dies at the be- like a little ways through the second season, I believe. Mm-hmm. But there's an episode where this 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 uh, spy essentially breaks into the NCIS uh, morgue and holds Ducky and the guy that was working there at the time hostage. 
and for like the rest of the season on Gibbs's monitor was the facial recognition running through to try to find out who it was. Hmm. So you had your cases, but in the background it's, we're looking for Aerie. We're looking for this guy, and that eventually ends up with Kate dying and Ziva coming onto the team. But even then you had, like there was a, an entire season where Tony was involved in uh, an undercover operation because uh, Lauren Holly's character was looking for this gun runner who was somehow responsible for her dad's death. Uh, so you have that going on all season, but you still had the, they got another body type of thing. <laughs> yeah. And, and a show that, um, that I think fit that really well um, is, is one that kind of falls into a second category to have, what I call them carryover shows. And this is what I mentioned in my sitcom episode. These are shows that started on network but finished in syndication. Mm-hmm. Um, Baywatch being, of course, the most famous. But two other ones that, that did. One was Fame, which I never watched. I've only seen the movie um, and know the Irene Cara song very well. But 21 Jump Street um, started on Fox. It had like one season in syndication after Fox had canceled it. And it was it. awful. It's a pretty bad scene. There's like there are like two or three pretty decent episodes. I actually this could come as a shock to nobody. I have this season on DVD because um, I'm a completist. <laughs> yeah, because they introduced Penthall's little brother, but it was the mm-hmm. guy that played young Penthall in an mm-hmm. earlier episode where they were talking about their high school bullies. Yeah, doesn't he also play like the douchebag in? Encino Man or like some other team. He movies. was in was he in Wayne, he was in Wayne's World. He is in he? Wayne's World. He's one of the he's one of their friends because he's in the Bohemian Rhapsody yeah. scene. Yeah, my, there's my, like 15 Deloise kids. Yeah, it's That's it's Peter is Penhall. Michael was the younger. I think it was Michael was the younger Penhall. And um, there is one episode of that show that I, of that season that I really remember well was where the younger Penhall has to infiltrate a cult and he gets caught up in the cult <laughs> and, and they have to deprogramming toward the end. I just remember that really well. And then I remember they had an actor named Michael Bendetti who is basically like the coy and Vance version of Johnny Depp. And it was so obvious that he was there to replace Johnny Depp and it just didn't work. It was like, yes. he wasn't, he wasn't even a poor man's Johnny Depp cause that's Skeet Ulrich. But, um, well, the thing is, is that they brought in Booker <laughs> to be kind of like the other Johnny Depp, because he was, you know, it was Richard Grieco. Yeah, Richard Grieco. Uh, who was in a movie that is so much better than it deserves to be, If Looks Could if Kill. If Looks Could Kill. I it saw is, that in the theater, man. It's actually a really funny spy Yes, yes. Like, seriously. it's so much better than it deserves to be. But yeah. Booker came in, but he didn't really pop, and they put him off on his own series, and... It's, uh, it, I think, I don't, th- if it lasted a season, I'd be really surprised. I don't think it did, and on one of the DVDs, uh, one of the DVD sets for Jump Street that I have, um, and I haven't watched all the way through uh, the last two seasons, but there's one episode of that show on there because it is a, I think it was like a two-parter with Jump Street. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like you couldn't, 
it continued some storylines, so they threw it in there, but I haven't even watched it yet. Yeah, they, um, but the, but that show, like I said, it really didn't, um, and I remember that, that PIX would run it, and I think it was one day of the week where they were running the new episodes, and then the rest of the days of the week it would run reruns. It was like Mondays they were running the new Jump Street episodes, and then every other day was they would pick up where they left off with the reruns. And I rarely watched the new ones. So, so the only episode I saw of the new of the new syndicated series was I was visiting my aunt, and she lived near Fairfax, Virginia. Uh-huh. They dumped that thing at like one o'clock in the morning. Oh, really? On the channel that it was on. Because yeah, they they had no. Because I was just like, is this a new episode of Twenty One Jump Street? Who is? Where's Jim? Wh- what did I miss? <laughs> So you were Nothing. up late watching. You were up late watching Silk Stockings. I never watched I, Silk Stockings. I never watched Silk Stockings either. Oddly enough, that, yeah. Was that a network? I don't even know if that, that was, was a on network USA. Thing. I thought. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was I, terrible. I mean, I remember it being on and watching like bits and pieces of it. But if I, I'm sorry, I had cable, <laughs> and HBO would show stuff after eight o'clock. So that's all I'm going to say about that. So the the third category of um, of syndicated programs that I've talked about is is the first run is the shows that premiered, aired, and went off the air entirely within syndication. Um, they may have been rerun on cable networks. They may have been rerun, been rerun otherwise. But for the most part, your first run was in syndication. And um, a show that I didn't mention in the rerun category that I am going to mention now because. I really think that in a big way, the success of a first-run syndicated show starts with its with its spinoff, is Star Trek. So Star Trek got a second life in syndication, mm-hmm. um, and um, and Star Trek, of course, had the animated series after that. But Star Trek got rerun like crazy, and then when the movies were big, like PIX would dig up their Star Trek reruns when they could, and then in '87, Star Trek: The Next Generation premieres. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its continuing mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no one has gone before.
Star Trek The Next Generation is is like a, it's a benchmark series for syndication, syndicated drama because it was really successful. Um, and it lasted from 87 until I think it went off the air in 94, which is a really healthy run, like extraordinarily healthy run for a syndicated series. And it was really a, a really healthy run for a, for for a science fiction series. I mean, if you go back to the science fiction series that aired on network, I think I want to say that like the X-Files and Quantum Leap are probably your exceptions to the rule. Most yeah, Incredible Hulk, uh, yeah. $16 Man lasted, yeah. I think, five or six seasons. But yeah. normally, a it's, it's why, you know, at Dragon Con, one of the big tracks that I'm involved with is the American Sci-Fi Classics track. There's so much to talk about because there were so many different shows that only lasted one or two seasons. Yeah. And a lot of the problem was that these shows, in many cases, were pretty expensive to mm-hmm. produce. So you had to, if the ratings, the ratings weren't good, they'd cut it because they had to cut costs in the budget. Whereas sitcoms probably were not as expensive unless the stars had gotten big and they demanded big salaries. Yeah, but let's face it: there's less special effects in an episode of Thirty Something. Oh, yeah, uh, than there is in Star Trek The Next Generation. I mean, L.A. Law, the most they had to spend on were the expensive clothes everybody was wearing. Because, uh, cause, you know, the sets were pretty static. You had pretty yeah. much the same courtroom every time. Uh, you had the law offices, and occasionally you had people's, like, apartments and stuff. But, you know, your your, your expenses on a show are all about... And where you can save money is having static sets. This was the the problem that the Incredible Hulk ran into mm-hmm. uh, in later years because the uh, the new head of program or the new president of CBS was just like we can make five shows and won't be spent on one Hulk. So why don't we give a character that follows David around and he'll be in a mobile home? Like like mentor driving Billy Batson around the highways and byways of the land, so that you had that one static set instead of having to do a new location every episode. Yeah, that's and um, yeah, because I, I listened to a podcast um, again with this over on the Previously TV network that's covering Beverly Hills nine hundred two one zero episode by episode. And um, you could tell they, they always point out when they've cut corners by showing like um, scene setting B roll that's clearly from something in the late seventies because of the cars in the picture mm-hmm. and things like that. And yeah, you're right that a lot of these um, and I've noticed that I you know it's something I have noticed with the superhero shows that we watch is that that as much as I enjoy some of them, I don't watch all of them, but as much as I enjoy the ones I watch, they're becoming kind of formulaic and that they all have the same very similar headquarters set. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and even like where I like, even Supergirl did that where they kind of are, they kind of phase out a lot of the of the um, Catco stuff because they're in the DEO all the time, which is a lot like the Star Lab set, which is a lot like the, you know, so... They'll try to establish what static sets. Yeah, you have Kara's apartment, you have Alex's apartment, mm-hmm. you have Lena's office, the DEO, and the various rooms in there, which I'm sure are just like massive sets they redress, and you have 
Jimmy's office at Catco and the lobby right yeah. outside of it. And that's it. Those are your yeah. sets. Star Trek The Next Generation um, was the first Star Trek series to run since the 60s. Um, the aborted Star Trek Phase Two show mm-hmm. became Star Trek The Motion Picture. Um, what they ended up doing was interesting how Star Trek The Next Generation became sort of a cost-cutting way for the movies to stay under budget because I want to say it was Star Trek VI, the set of the Enterprise there is a redressed next generation set or they they kind of used a lot of stuff that they could from the from the tv show uh but this is me talking about out of my ass here i'm trying to remember stuff that i've read in trivia over the years and star trek the next generation is a show that's well covered in podcasting lens so i'm not gonna yes. spend a lot of a lot of time on it i watched it i watched it intermittently i would go on streaks where i would watch like I would be into it for a couple of months. Um, I remember the one season that ended with Picard being assimilated by the Borg. Oh, yeah. That was like the big season for me. But then, but then I would kind of drop off for a while, and then I would pick it up again. I have a few tapes, I think, here in the basement that might have several episodes on them. I was way more into the original series and the movies than I was The Next Generation. Did you watch the show right from the beginning all the way to the end, or <laughs> okay. do you remember that? So... When that show was announced, PIX went Star Trek crazy. Yeah. Because it started showing the the 60s series again, but Mm -hmm. they had found, and for the longest time, parts of the episode were in black and white because that was all they could find, and parts were in color. But they found the original pilot. Yeah, the cage. And and they made a huge deal out of that. The Mm -hmm. weekend that show premiered, uh, I believe it was PIX that showed it. I could be yes. wrong on that. No, so, they did. They showed it on Saturday nights. And I, I think 29 on, did too. Yeah, I want to say it was on the 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock on Saturday so, nights. So they showed the pilot over and over and over mm-hmm. again. And that weekend, I was, I, it was one of the first times as, you know, I was all of 11 years old. Uh, that I reorganized my room where I moved furniture around. Uh, and I had a little black and white television. Uh, and I had it on. And I was watching the pilot over and over again. I would watch it in color, and then I watched a bunch of times in black and white. I followed the first season, and I watched I watched more of it in quote-unquote rerun. Because mm-hmm. once they got a few seasons in. But once I got into high school... The people I hung around with, uh, especially my friend Amy Vineski, uh, who is now Amy Vineski Howe, uh, were huge into Star Trek. And we, I remember my senior year of high school, I went over to her house to watch the season premiere. It was like an event. And the last episode was an event. The funny thing is, is that this is where I found out that my dad had a little geek in him, because he was a fan of the original series. Mm-hmm. And I would try to get him to watch Next Gen, and every time he'd sit down with me to watch Next Gen, it was a rerun, and it was the same episode over and over <laughs> and over again. I don't know how this happened, but I watched it pretty regularly 
but I would watch it a lot more when it was on like daily instead of watching it on Saturday night. That always seeing the same rerun thing happened to me with the Twilight Zone, believe it or not. <laughs> Classic Twilight. Because WPIX um, annually for a while, or, and even more than annually for a while, would run a Twilight Zone marathon, usually around New Year's Eve. And I am not kidding, there were like two or three marathons in a row where I may have seen two or three episodes, but I always ended up turning on first terror at 30,000 feet with William Shatner. Like, every damn time. I've seen that episode more times than any other Twilight Zone episode. It's a good episode, but it's just like you talk about Star Trek, you talk about the same rerun. Shatner with the gremlin on the plane is mine. Um, yeah, I, I didn't, and I watched it myself. Um, I never, beyond First Contact, I never stuck with, I didn't stick with the movies. And then um, I never really got into Deep Space Nine. Uh, I think I might have watched a few episodes here and there, but it, and, and Voyager. I don't think I've seen a single episode of Voyager, so I was kind of done with Star Trek I, by the time I hit college. Uh, Deep, Sp- Deep Space Nine was big when it premiered, mm-hmm. and I followed it a little bit. Voyager was gigantic because that was the launch of the United Paramount Network. Yeah, it was like their that was their anchor show basically. And I remember because that was '95. I was finishing up my first year of college i was dating this girl uh who was also a star trek fan and i remember we went this had to be in march or april probably closer to april uh we went to a it was the only time i ever went to a out and out star trek convention not like Hmm. a convention that is everything we went to a star trek convention it was funny because we drove to it and we're into the, and it's a giant convention center, and we're looking for a parking place. And we're passing all of these pickup trucks with gun racks and NRA stickers. And I'm like, you know, I always thought, maybe I'm wrong, I've never been to one of these before, but I always thought that these were rather peaceful. And when we walked into the convention center, all became clear. Downstairs, Star Trek convention. Upstairs, gun show. Gun show. <laughs> oh, that, one of the best double bookings. But the guests there were Garrett Wang and Ethan Phillips. And this was right after Voyager launched. So it was like, oh, okay. it, it was it was their, both of their, sec, it was Garrett Wang's second convention and Ethan Phillips' first. So it was, uh, it, you know, that was like the big thing at the time. But I got to tell you, after that pilot, I don't think I ever watched another episode all the way through of Voyager. Because it just bored me to tears. And then they brought on Seven of Nine, which uh, guys who think they're funny, it's like, it was the two best things about that show. (laughs) (laughs) You sexist (laughs) prick. Um, but, uh, But it was just... But the fact of the matter is, is that Star Trek... Beyond the fact that I love Next Gen. Next Gen is my preferred Star Trek. Next mm-hmm. Gen and the films of the original cast. Uh, I, I have not... I have watched the classic, you know, TOS, as, as, as yeah. some people call it. Uh, I've watched that. I appreciate it. But it's, 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 it's a show my wife and I can watch together because she likes it too. Uh, she bought me the box set of the series. Ooh. Uh, a couple birthdays ago 
and and it's not and, and I don't want to get into the whole who's better Kirk or Picard or whatever. I just like those characters because I spent my school years with them. I was in sixth grade when it premiered, and it was my senior year of high school when it ended. Yeah. yeah so it and, felt like I was graduating to something. No, yeah. And I, I was only a year behind you, but it was very, very close to that. And, and I look at a number of the shows on my list, and we're going to start going through kind of the the also-rans here. <laughs> um, uh, and, and a number of them had a couple seasons beyond high school for me, but I really had stopped watching a lot of television by then because when you're in college, even if you have a television in your dorm room, you're not, yeah. I was not watching a lot of it. Um, Babylon five is another show that gets mentioned a lot. I never watched a single episode of it. I have to be completely honest with you. I know J. Michael Straczynski was the showrunner, Um, and, uh, there are a number of people who we are friends with, uh, who are huge fans of the show and the show had a pretty, pretty, uh, Faithful following and still does. And it, and it launched at around it. It was going to launch, and then Paramount put Deep Space Nine into production, and they were kind yeah. of very similar. And I remember there's, there, there, I think there's still kind of a kerfuffle about that. I watched a couple of episodes. The one episode that I remember reading, watching specifically, was because Peter David wrote it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was not. I was not. Here's the thing. By the time that show came on, I had a social life. That is something I've found as I started to go through this whole mini series. And I and I, I jokingly say, well, not joking, but I say the cutoff for the the co- my coverage for the most part. You know, stuff bleeds and in, in, into things. We get off on tangents about things that are more current day. But 1996 is really kind of the cutoff for me because I was in my sophomore year of college. My parents finally ponied up the money for cable, and um, it was kind of it was a big game changer. But by then, you're right. Like, but I look at like 1994 into 1995, which was my senior year of high school, and I did actually get a girlfriend, and that that does change a lot of the time you spend in front of the television. It might be you know less and less than. Because you're going to movies and you're yeah. and you're doing stuff with your friends and, and and occasionally, you know, it'd be like, well, let's get together and we'll just watch Star Trek, yeah, and that's fine, but it's not like you know three or four years earlier where Sunday mornings we'd get the morning call, I'd plunk down the TV guy that was in it, and I would plan out my Sundays and Saturdays. By what movies mm-hmm. were coming on and what shows were coming on. Yeah, because after Star Trek: The Next Generation, or around the time of Star Trek: The Next Generation, um, syndicated networks or syndicated, you know, the production companies that were doing things for syndication really caught on to the fact that there was some money to be made, especially among um, kids who had been watching cartoons but were now starting to age out of those cartoons. Um, and needed something to watch if they were, if they, as almost like an alternative to, like, where they could com- maybe compete with some cable stuff and some MTV stuff, because not everybody had cable and MTV back in the late 80s yet. And um, so you would have horror series like Friday the 13th, the series, and Freddy's Nightmares. Yes! Um, 
Miss Vondradine made a deal with the devil to sell cursed antiques. But he broke the pact, and it cost him his soul. Now his niece Mickey and her cousin Ryan have inherited the store, and with it, the curse. Now they must get everything back, and the real terror begins. Tales from the Dark Side. I uh-huh. another one. I watched the With, crap out of Tales of the Dark Side from the Dark Side. I, I, watched a number of those. I may have seen a couple of episodes of Friday the 13th, the series, but I remember watching Tales from the Dark Side and the reruns of the 80s version of the Twilight Zone that started on CBS. Okay, so Friday the 13th, real quick, uh, I had such a crush on the redhead in that show that (laughs) I watched it for years. Even beyond when the original guy that actually was also in Friday the 13th... uh, the the last one that Paramount did, Jason Takes Manhattan. No, uh, the, no, the first one New Line did. Excuse me. Final Friday. Uh, Jason goes to hell. Yeah, the, he was uh, the one of the main guys from the one of the cousins uh-huh. from Friday the Thirteenth had a small part in that. But I, again, my wife bought me the box set of the series because it was thirty dollars at Walmart. I loved that show. Scared me at times. And Freddy's, Freddy's Nightmares?
holy crap, the episode, there were some really lousy episodes in there, but there were episodes that actually tracked, like, the, 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 before he became a dream monster. Mm -hmm. Like him in, in the courtroom and how the, uh, verdict got screwed up and how all the parents got together and burned him. That was the only place you saw that stuff. Yeah, and that's not a show I watched. I Maybe I saw an episode, but I, I remember seeing commercials for it, and, and I don't remember when it was on. Maybe it was on against wrestling or something, and I was watching that or American Gladiators because I was competing with that. Um, but one show I made a point not to miss, at least in its first season, was the syndicated War of the Worlds show. In 1953, Earth experienced a War of the Worlds. Common bacteria stopped the aliens, but it didn't kill them. Instead, the aliens lapsed into a state of deep hibernation. Now the aliens have been resurrected, more terrifying than before. In 1953, aliens started taking over the world. Today, they're taking over our bodies. shit out of it. Now, I didn't watch much of the second season. I don't know if it's time slot changed or I think what. it did because I lost complete track of it after the first year. Yeah, and I think they completely retooled it for the second season. Yeah, too. Adrian Paul yeah. came on in the second season. Mm-hmm. But it had it had the... Um, I remember watching the, the pilot and the pilot for a lot of these shows especially... Star Trek The Next Generation, and then War of the Worlds was almost like a two... It was almost they, they what, the, what networks would do with some pilots, would, where it was essentially almost like a two-hour episode. And mm -hmm. then in, in reruns, they would split it into two episodes. And I remember I had read the H.G. Wells novel, um, and I had watched... I had rented the... Um, the, the, the classic 50s, the 1950s movie with the with the ships that, that they, they kind of based it on. And um, I remember it was a not a genuinely scary show, but there were parts of it that were scary and they were and it was a really well done show because they they saved a lot of their effects budget by giving the aliens the ability to take over humans. Mm-hmm. So the aliens would possess the humans, and it was almost this sort of, like, it, it got really dark in places. It was a little schlocky in others. It was kind of cheesy in others. But it was just such a great show. And the one guy who was in Predator um, was on the show was the military guy. The, the thing I remember most about 
being into that show was it came on in 1988, in the fall of 1988. Mm-hmm. And that was the 50th anniversary of Orson Welles' War of the Worlds. Yes. And there was a big... Uh, the fall of 1988 to me is... Three huge things for pop culture and one huge thing for me. You had the 50th anniversary of War of the Worlds, and I remember Halloween night sitting in my room, one of the local radio stations played it in its entirety. Oh, cool. You had the 100th anniversary of Jack the Ripper and the murders. You had the death of Jason Todd. (laughs) <laughs> so those are the things that I remember about uh, about junior high. The thing that didn't really matter to a lot of other people was that's when I really got into the Superman stories and it got into the exile thing. But for me, that was that was the beginning of my junior high experience because seventh grade, for whatever reason, in the school district I lived in was was junior high. It was seventh, eighth, and ninth. Yeah, that's, uh, that's what ours was too. So, so I didn't start junior high until eighty nine, the fall of eighty nine. So I was. Uh, so I was starting like the next big stage of my teen, you know, my life. You know, I was becoming a teenager uh, to to you know with the hyphen because you know Stanley. But that but that was one of the big things is that show came on and I remember it was they took people over and they would have tentacles. Yes, because the tentacles were an easy effect to do. Yeah. So, but yeah, I really like. I I remember being really into it for the first year, and then completely losing track of it. And they did an episode that centered around because most of the most of the aliens that were in the show were leftover or survivors of the 1950s invasion. So they were trying to pull for continuity's sake from that movie. But they did an episode that centered around what they called the 1938 invasion. So it tied itself back into Orson Welles' broadcast. I remember, and they had like some guy, they had an actor playing a senior citizen who had survived that or witnessed that alien invasion or something like that. And, and I remember that one um, being particularly like a really good episode. It was, yeah, you're right. It was a show that I and I don't know if it lasted beyond its second season. I think it I think it got canceled because the ratings were just not. You know, were not particularly uh, were particularly good, but it was around that time that they did start running these blocks of syndicated programs. And um, PIX was running more of the worlds. They were running Star Trek, and they were running some of these other shows like Dark Side and, and um, Friday Thirteenth. But then Channel Nine, they had your syndication sitcom blocks. Um, that's where Out of This World, <laughs> a show that I really, really watched. Because I had an enormous crush on the actress who played uh, the lead, um, Evie, the the alien half alien girl, uh, Maureen Flanagan is her name. Um, but airing before Out of This World was my secret identity. Mm-hmm. This is better than my imagination. This is more than a dream come true. Without the slightest bit of hesitation, I knew what I was meant to do.
starring Jerry O'Connell, who played this teenager who got superpowers and hit, and hung out with the scientist guy. So it was kind of a Marty Derek McGrath. Doc, yeah, Derek McGrath. Who played Dr. Jeff Coat. Yes, yes. And uh, he was, um, it was almost a Marty McFly, Doc Brown thing with superpowers. Um, I watched a lot of that, and you got to watch Vern uh, grow up, essentially. Yeah, yeah that, 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 was a, that was a huge disappointment. Not the show, but... Okay, so we're, we're... And it probably was the same channel you watched, but for me, mm-hmm. starting in 88, you had Superboy with my secret identity right after it. So you had mm-hmm. the live-action Superboy series, which went four years. My Secret Identity only went three. But that first episode, you had not quite hunkish Chris, uh, Jerry O'Connell. Jerry O'Connell. Like, basically, Dr. Jeffcoat was the weird guy that lived next door. He went into his house, tripped, and was hit by this beam that gave him super strength, invulnerable... No, no, it gave him the ability of flight, and he was invulnerable, and I think he had super speed. Late, he did have super speed. Later yes. in the series, he got hit with the beam again at a concert, because some... I don't know if it was the guy they introduced in like the second season that was his like bad boy friend... Uh, you know, stole it for a rock concert. He got hit again and developed super strength. Uh, but I watched, I mean, it was a show about a comic book fan that gets superpowers. Yeah. They went away from that really quick. Uh, and they dropped the Ultraman thing, like, mm-hmm. after the first couple of episodes. But it was really this kind of war- heartwarming, coming-of-age, like, story with with a superpower twist and his superpowers became less and less important to the show. It was more about, you know, being a teenager. Uh, though there was one episode where he ran at super speed, hit a tree and then was back in the sixties with his dad. I think I remember that. episode. So, but yeah, I loved, I loved that show and, uh, I am friends with Derek McGrath on Facebook and that makes me happy. That's cool. You've talked about um, Superboy over on From Crisis to Crisis uh, way back when you started yep. the show because it was it happened in the first couple of years of your coverage area, and of course it had two actors who played Superboy. Uh, Christopher Gerard was the second, and John Hames Newton was the first. Gerard Stacey. Christopher. Gerard Christopher. Rocketed from a distant planet to a bold new destiny on Earth. Found by a Kansas family and raised as Clark Kent, he learned he possessed the strength of steel, the speed of light, and the desire to help all mankind. He is Superboy. Uh, Stacy Haddock was Lana Lang, and she yes, she was. Uh, she was on this really like I don't even think it lasted a season. NBC drama called The Round Table that I watched for all of like two episodes 
only because the hot lot of Lang was, was hey, on it. The only reason I didn't watch Sequest DSB was because it was on at the same time that Lois and Clark was on. <laughs> this is that's a good point. Um but like uh Superboys are produced by the Salkinds, yep. I believe. And isn't there now um I don't you you guys probably mentioned it when you covered it. It's been a few years since I heard that episode. But um I want to say there's an episode with a Jorel and Lara who look oh, like Brando and uh, it's, Susanna York. It's George Lazenby and Britt Eklund. Oh, jeez. Uh, and what happened is it was a two-part episode where Jorel and Lara show up at Schuster University. This was uh, second season, I believe. Uh, I kind of confused the second and, and third season for some reason. I don't know why. I guess I'll have to watch it a little more. But I think I think Andy McAllister was in that one, so it must have been the second season. Because in the third season, they went to work for the Bureau of Extra Normal Affairs, I believe they called it, because it was after Batman and they had to darken the show up. Because uh, uh, yeah. it was like the first season was during the writer's strike, they were figuring everything out, and while I like John Hames Newton and the rest of the cast, some of the stories were terrible. When you got into, and like the guy, and I don't want to say too many bad things about Scott Wells, who played Lex Luthor in the first season, because he's not with us anymore. Uh, but, I mean, not like with us, I mean, he's dead. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But in the second season, Gerard Christopher took over, who I like as Superboy, and I'm going to leave it at that. Uh, and. Sherman Howard became Lex Luthor, and suddenly the show became more comic bookish. Uh, you had the first live action Metallo. You had the first live action, and even though he was in the first season, Mr. Mixias Pitalik, uh, Bizarro live action. So, but there was an episode where they come back, and it turns out that it's not really Jarell and Lara. They were aliens that were trying to capture Superboy. And at the end of the episode, uh, at the end of the second part, basically everything's gone back in time to undo everything that happened. So Superboy doesn't remember that he's from Krypton because he doesn't know that yet. And Lana forgets that Clark is Superboy. But yes, huh. it was it was a former Bond and a former Bond girl as Jarell and Laura. <laughs> Yeah, and that show, um, I remember watching probably most of the first two seasons, and then it kind of fell off my radar for whatever reason. Again, I can't I can't remember why I stopped watching a number of these shows, other than if they were canceled or not. Um, but like you said, sometimes it was because my social life took a turn for something. Sometimes they were shuffled around or whatever. Um, sometimes they would rerun like odd dramas that they kind of imported from like places like Canada. Um, there was some Nev Campbell drama called Catwalk that ran. I don't think I ever watched an episode. I just remember seeing commercials for it. But then you had this sort of, before we get into the early 90s, in some of the early 90s stuff, but you had, you had this sort of attempt to do some action shows. Um, I, I, before, I mean, before we get into some of the ones that like people actually remember, I do have to mention TNT. T.S. Turner was a city smart kid fighting his way off the street until he was framed for a crime he didn't commit. 
Amy Taylor was a young crusading lawyer. She mounted an appeal to put Turner back on the street, this time in a suit and tie, working as a private detective. Together, they are TNT. Yes! <laughs> Which I think I saw a few episodes of. I, I don't remember watching too much of it, but I just remember it was like, Mr. T is a lawyer. and Or something like that. I just... And, and I was just like, it was such an attempt to like give him another... something else to do, but... Uh, but it wasn't terrible. It just wasn't... It wasn't ready for network, basically. It, yeah. it was it was a quintessential syndicated show because they're 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 trading off of the former popularity of Mr. T but putting him in a suit and tie basically. Yeah. So he's still like a badass, but he's a badass that now dresses nice. And and then there was this spate of, of of shows or attempts at shows that would either try to capitalize on some of the sci-fi stuff or some of the popularity of action movies. And and I think that I was thinking about this this morning because I was just trying to put together a, a list of, of shows and I'm thinking of movies that would have also worked as syndicated television shows in the early '90s. And I thought of like Rapid Fire with Brandon yep. Lee. That would have totally worked. As a oh yeah, the, the, the martial arts guy teaming up with the yeah. cops, and the cops who worked out of like a bowling alley, and you know, Powers and... Booth could have come to the show because what else oh, was yeah. he doing? I know it was just it, 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 that show was like that that just, that movie was made for like a syndicated uh, syndicated show, uh, totally underrated movie by the way. Yes, um, and and I and I thank you for kind of reminding me that it existed because if you hadn't, I would have totally not watched it. Um, but then you have like stuff like Lorenzo Lamas in Renegade. <laughs> hey, Renegade! He was a cop and good at his job, but he committed the ultimate sin and testified against other cops gone bad. Cops that tried to kill him, but got the woman he loved instead. Framed for murder, now he prowls the Badlands, an outlaw hunting outlaws, a bounty hunter, a renegade.
<laughs> with with uh, Lorenzo Lamas, who had been on um, Falcon Crest, I think he was uh, he had been big in the eighties on 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 primetime soaps, and um, and was still kind of a sex, in a way, a sex symbol, I guess. Um, he basically borrowed Steve Gutenberg's mullet from the movie Don't Tell Her It's Me, which is the only you're the only other person who's now on now it. now by its original uh, novel title The Boyfriend's The Boyfriend. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I just remember renting it. Hey, it had Jamie Gertz in it. That's all I'm gonna say. Yes. <laughs> um, but he had this this. I mean, like his mullet put like. 90s comics mullets to shame it was it was beautiful um i think james tolkien was in that show yeah and the bad guy was played by the producer stephen j cannell yes it was basically it was a cop on the run who did martial arts and that's the only reason i watched it was for the pseudo martial arts that was in it so it was nomad yeah, it was basically no like in the nineties. If they had cast and done like a nomad television series, Lorenzo Lamas would have totally played that character. Yeah, was I forgot to look this up? Was Viper a syndicated show? Or was that on was that on NBC? Because they, they premiered the car in the show. I think Viper was a syndicated show because Viper. Yeah. I'm trying to remember if Viper. Was Viper the one that was done by the do, the people that did the Flash, or was that another show? I don't remember. Uh, but I, re- I remember at some point in the early '90s, advertisements for some of these shows would wind up on the back covers of comic books or the inside covers of comic books. And uh, one I remember seeing a lot of was this show Time. It was Tracks. originally on NBC and then went to. Okay, so it was kind of a it was a carryover show. And it was by Petfly Productions, which was uh, the people that did The Flash. Yeah. So the saying is like I remember seeing a lot of advertisements for these in comic books, especially the dollar um, twenty five, dollar fifty, dollar seventy five comic books uh, that like DC would put out. So there are a number of episodes, issues of like my Titans comics that have like time tracks um, advertisements on the back cover. It began in the future. The scientists turning to evil. A time machine called Tracks. Criminals who vanish. And a lawman with a mission. He has one weapon. And a computer named Summer. Good morning, Captain Lambert. With him, he will travel to a time more innocent than his own. Now he is among us. A special breed of man. A hunter. Traveling through our world, searching for fugitives from his own. Knowing he cannot go home until he has found them all. His name is Darian Lambert. And this is his story. Which was basically like kind of like a time cop type of, of series. And you had what they would run on one of the networks. Is I think they called it like the Action Pack, where it was like three or yes! four shows. It was Babylon 5 and yeah. uh, Kung Fu The Legend Continues. Kung Fu Legend Continues. Time Cop. Yeah. No, um, no, no. The, 
Time Tracks. Time Tracks, that's right. And was there a show called The Sentinel? Yes. In all tribal cultures, every village had a sentinel. Now, a sentinel is chosen because of a genetic advantage. A sensory awareness that can be developed beyond normal humans. Your time spent in Peru has got to be connected with what's happening to you now. I've got hundreds of documented cases of one or two hyperactive senses, but not one single subject with all five. You could be the real thing. The Sentinel yes. was another pet fly show, and here's the funny... The lead on The Sentinel was the runner-up for Barry Allen on the 1990 television, Flash television series. Yeah, and that guy who played the lead on The Sentinel would pop up in shows every once in a while. Like, he was in the first season of 24 as kind of like a heavy, a hitman type. Well, he was also um, uh, a bad guy in an episode of The Flash, which is why John Wesley Shipp played a bad guy in an episode of The Sentinel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, and you had you had these shows which, if you remember to watch them, you would watch them. If not, you, you would fall off. And and there was that really bad like Hulk Hogan show called like Thunder Bay or something like that. I can't remember. Ah, uh, what was that? <sighs> what the hell was? And I don't think he was credited as Hulk Hogan. I think he was credited as like. Terry Hogan or Terry Hulk Hogan because probably because of some sort of Thunder uh, in Paradise. Thunder in Paradise, yes. There were a um, lot of shows like that, like, uh, uh, what was the other? Riptide. Riptide. Pacific Blue, I think, was the name of another one. And, um, because one of them had Rick Rossovich, who played Slider, 
on um it well, it started on the USA network and it was uh that wasn't it was USA network sorry um Rick Rossovich on on Pacific Blue which is they referred to as Baywatch on bikes um about bike cops yes because the, but it, that, that ran for five seasons on USA by the way um but I think the show if if I'm putting like we talked Next Generation and 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 um Star Trek Deep Sound Superboy was one we watched a lot of. We watched a lot of My Secret Identity. And I think right up there with all of them, the one I really did follow as much as I could all the way through, um, except for the last maybe season and a half, two seasons, was Highlander. I was born 400 years ago in the Highlands of Scotland. I am immortal, and I am not alone. Now is the time of the gathering, when the stroke of a sword will release the power of the quickening. In the end, there can be only one. Which I lost after about 1995 because I stopped. Just again, it was um, the I remember forgetting was on one time. I came across an episode where he was fighting his evil half Superman three style, um, and but the first couple of seasons of that show I watched religiously. Yeah, I remember when it premiered, it was my junior year, and we heard that there was going to be a Highlander TV series, and that Connor was going to be in the first episode, and at first I was dead set against the idea of doing a show that isn't about Connor. But I watched the first episode, which had Richard Mull as the Kurgan-type character, Slade. God, Richard Mull was one of those actors you called if you needed some... Just you needed a, a big guy to do something. And, and then actors from 21 Jump Street started showing up in the early season. Pent Hall was in like the second episode where he gets owned twice by Mac. And very quickly I started liking the show, but the first season is really rough. Where I fell in love with it is that USA started showing it in the afternoons, like around 95. And that's where I started following it and watching it. But... The last season came on in 97, I believe, because it was five seasons. And I I stopped it by then. Right before the new season started, my friend Ryan, who we we did everything together at that point, we were hanging out at my apartment, and it just happened to come on. And we're watching the episode, and there's this thing that can assume other people's forms. So Mac is fighting, and Mac is fighting, and suddenly Mac cuts off Richie's head. And we're like, and me and Ryan look at each other and literally at the same time go, holy shit! So we're like, and it was the next week was when the new season was going to premiere. 
And we're like, oh, we're watching. Oh, yeah, we're watching this. So we followed it for like four or five weeks. Friday nights, we would go back to my apartment and we would watch Highlander. Uh, and we were really excited because they said they were going to do a spinoff series with a female immortal. And mm-hmm. in like the first couple of episodes, they have all these really strong female immortal characters. And then it was Amanda and I was just done. I was just, yeah, that was, was the Raven. Yeah, wasn't I it? was, I was, you know, there are people that will defend that now. I appreciate them. I really do. But I loved Highlander. I loved that. I loved Mac. I loved the people in his life. Uh, I think it got much better after Tess died. That I remember that episode really clearly because it was. I mean, they were going for a Silence of the Lambs type of thing with with the plot. I remember because they had a guy with night vision goggles or whatever, and the the way they they did it. And, and when I was, you know, I was a kid watching this, and she makes it out alive, but then she's killed after the fact. By a gunman outside the house, and it's just like, yeah. what the F just happened? It's a, it's a gut punch of an episode, but then the show gets better. Yeah, because Richie becomes thought, an immortal. Yeah. He moves in above the gym. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you have like that uh, African American character that comes in and becomes his friend yeah. uh, that I really liked. And Richie's not as obnoxious. Okay, Richie is Richie, but Richie is at least more interesting. There was a great episode with Sheena Easton where yes, uh, where we we see Mac finally starting to train Richie, and there's this he's teaching him technique and they're doing like the training montage, but at the very end of the montage, they kick into princes of the universe. And it was really cool. It was just, I remember that. Yeah. And it was just Highlander is why Jeffrey is my co-host on from crisis to crisis, by the way, because we Mm. bonded over, he knew me from the Superman homepage and we would talk on AOL instant messenger because, you know, 2007, 2008. Yeah. And we would talk about Highlander all the time. So it was, it was a weird time in life. But no, I, I, I absolutely fell for that show. I will even defend the first post-series movie. Even if it's um, terrible. Endgame? Uh, was it Endgame? Was Endgame? It was the one with Final Di- Final Dimension was the third one, I thought. Yeah, that was the third one. The fourth one was Endgame, yeah. and then there the was... The Source. The Source, which I never saw. Neither did I. Yeah. Um, I remember, too, the thing that I really liked, and then, like I said, I kind of fell off in watching it in its last couple of seasons, was when they added the whole mythology of the Watchers. That was probably the smartest thing they did, because it gave the series more of an ongoing protagonist-antagonist. Yeah, because because you didn't need something like the Watchers in the original feature film, um, because the original feature film is these are more like they explain it in the opening from the dawn of time. Yeah, recorded yeah, over and, the phone, by the way, in in his bathroom. Yes, um, and uh, you didn't need the Watchers because it wasn't as far as they knew this was going to be a one and done 
movie, especially since the you know the, the series premiered in the '90s and that movie was what '86. Um, but by the time you get a couple of seasons into Highlander, you're right, and they it just kind of adds this really cool layer, and it makes total sense that if these people have been on in our society for hundreds, thousands of years. Um, and they, they ignored all that Highlander to the quickening bullshit, which was so good because that whole, that movie, like I never even saw the renegade cut. I just saw the original version. That whole aliens thing was so stupid, you know, but they, like you would imagine that these people would, somebody would know these people exist. Yeah. And the, and they, they form this watcher group and it's like, it was such a cool thing to me, and then, like I said, I eventually fell off with it. But, well, you also had Joe, who was kind of a neat character. Yeah, he was cool. Because, one, he's like an older guy, but Mac's still technically older than him. And, two, he walked with a cane. So, it's just, it was such a neat... If you're going to do this as a series, and, and there are people that will argue that the first Highlander movie is the only thing that should ever happen. Uh, and to a certain extent, I can see that. But I fell in love with the television series uh, to the point where a couple years ago at Dragon Con, we had a renegade panel between panels about Highlander, uh, <laughs> and uh, which we ended by singing Princess of the Universe. Uh, but the thing, what I liked more than anything about that show is that you had a lead actor that was incredibly charismatic, but managed to kind of be a badass, but he was still sensitive because it was the early 90s. And there was a healthy dose for me. I In high school, I was all about martial arts movies. Uh, to, a, to a certain extent, I still watch like watching guys go hand-to-hand. But the fact that they mixed martial arts into it uh, and it wasn't just him sword fighting, which was cool because you had all these different s- types of swords and types of fencing, and you just had all these things you could hang on to. Plus, he was a dude with long hair and a coat in the 90s. I mean, how yeah. more, you can't get much more 90s than that. Adrian Paul could rock a ponytail. Yes, he could. And look good doing it. It didn't look smarmy or cheesy yeah. or anything like that. I mean, he had like the, the like the, the the muscle car and everything like that. But he yeah. was also super into antiques. Yeah, and and the whole the whole the seasons where he was on the barge in Paris were always pretty cool because it gave that sort of like you know where they were setting it internationally at some point. So kind of well, that that, that was a that production end. thing too. Oh yeah. No, it, um, it really was. The producers, the, to get the money and the funding, they had to film some of it in France. Huh. It worked though because, like, you've got a character who is supposed to be immortal, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Um, and and I think it worked too. If you're talking about the original film, um, not Con- Connor by the end of the movie is is you know where he uh, one of the best lines is like, "Where are you from?" He says, "Lots of different lots places. of different places." Yeah, um, but um, the thing about, like, when he meets Ramirez, the Scottish Spaniard. Yes. Um, but, like, but Connery, and uh, it's Connery, it's Connery in that movie, but uh, but Ramirez talks about how his sword was made by a Japanese swordsman. So, like, the idea that this man had traveled the world um, and was kind of, uh, 
you know, of lots of different places so that you would have like all of these different styles of fighting and, and, and action scenes and not, it wasn't just kind of like one set, um, setting and things like that. They, they really, really worked that to their advantage. Um, one of the best villains on the show I remember was played by, uh, the lead singer of fine young cannibals. Oh yeah. He was, uh, he was a bastard on that show. He was such a badass on that show. Um, Roger Daltrey showed up a few times too. He was but, fun, and and they had yeah. uh, Mythos, who was older than anybody, uh, who during one during one extended storyline where it was an immortal going after them, they would sense an immortal, and everybody would get all tense, and suddenly it was just Mythos. And my sister Jane and I would be watching it, and she would go Mythos. Uh, but it, you know, it's just it's just one of those shows that. I think benefited and took advantage of the syndicated market to develop a loyal and devoted following. And I know those two words are similar, but they're there's a you could be loyal and not devoted. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but also it would have never flown on network television. You would have never had Sunday nights on CBS Highlander. You know, it, it, was, yeah. it was, you know, let's find it and let's rerun it on USA. Yeah, and it 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 worked. It worked on a level that, that so many of the other shows that came along, like, um, maybe lasted a couple of, of seasons here and there because sometimes they were trying to cash in on, say, other shows that were popular. I know that there was, like, Poltergeist, The Legacy. Yeah. Um, the, because the X-Files was big, stuff like Psy Factor. Forever Night is something that gets brought up a lot, but it's no, I don't think I really watched it. Forever Night show. was Highlander with Vampires. It was yeah. originally a CBS movie of the week pilot called Nick Knight with Rick Springfield. Uh, and when CBS, when Letterman went to CBS in 93, they had, uh, really weird that this is brought up because I was just, I just released an episode of From Crisis to Crisis where we talk about this. Um, 
because of one of the character, one of the actors in the in the episode of Lois and Clark we were talking about. But Forever Night started out as this thing that after Letterman, so at twelve thirty, they would have CBS After Dark, mm-hmm. and one of the shows was Forever Night, which eventually went to syndication. Another show was Johnny Bago. About. <laughs> Look up the lead, the, the theme song from this. It's done by Jimmy Buffett. Life's too complicated, it's too complex. I was set up. I did not do it. Bounce from town to town like rubber checks. Bagel. Johnny Bagel. Didn't know at the time I'd pay double for the crime. A serious problem with the opposite sex. I guess that's friggin' that. Like an anchovy to an alley cat. Johnny Bagel's gonna have to stay a little further down the lost highway. You see, that's friggin' that. Talking to a big old diplomat. Johnny Bagel's gonna have to stay a little further down the lost highway. But it's basically this got Italian guy with mob ties gets out of jail and he's framed for a murder and he goes on the run and takes this dead guy's Winnebago and he's being chased by his psycho ex-wife who's now a bounty hunter. Okay. There's a lot of silence <laughs> on the other end of this call right now. <laughs> It was terrible. I watched every episode. Because it was the summer of 1993, and I would come home from doing... I was doing a theater workshop, and I would watch Letterman, because it was the dawn of Letterman on CBS. Yeah, I watched a lot of Letterman on CBS. And and you had these terrible (coughs) shows. They showed Kids in the Hall on CBS. I loved when I could... Because they ran Kids in the Hall late as anything, too. It was on a, like... It was on, like, one in the morning And or it's something. the American version of the show. Yeah. Which, there are differences that freaked me out when I saw them. Yeah, I didn't... I See, I didn't know that. I was That was my first exposure to the Kids in the Hall. And I think later on I would see reruns on cable somewhere, probably Comedy Central. Comedy Central, Central ran it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, there was another show... That CBS ran. It was. It took place like in Jamaica or some like tropical island, and I I can't never remember the name of it. This is something I gotta look up for maybe a blog post or another episode. But but yeah, I know Forever Night got into to syndication. And then you had um, I think the one science fiction show I haven't really mentioned before. I get into the as we start to get into the late nineties, the the ones I haven't mentioned yet are like Hercules and Xena. <laughs> the Stargate series, which none of which I really—that was by the time I was kind of—I wasn't—I honestly wasn't watching a lot of TV in the late '90s. That wasn't like NBC's must-see TV Thursday night lineup and The Simpsons and Sports Center. So, like, I kind of genre television kind of fell off my radar as as we got later and later into the into the '90s. Maybe I stuck around for the X Files and stuff, um, but Hercules and Xena. Um, 
Zena has more probably more of a faithful following than than her. I don't know about that, that dude. I <laughs> I moderated the Kevin Sorbo panel last year at DragonCon. Uh-huh. Uh, which some dude recognized me when we went to see Justice League. It was really weird. Um, but he, but most of the people in that room, it was like there was like a, a bunch of Andromeda, but holy crap was Hercules a huge part of that, uh, of the people in that room. Because uh, they kind of lit up more when he was talking about that. And it's kind of a fascinating story. Um that basically they they filmed all these shows in New Zealand. Like when you when you committed to the show, you were living in New Zealand basically for most of the huh. year. And uh, you know, Z- I watched more Xena than Hercules for obvious reasons. Because I'm sorry, not only Gee, I wonder what that not is. only did you have Lucy Lawless, who was just funny in, in addition to being incredibly hot. But you had Gabrielle, who was also like, it's like you had two flavors of hotness. And I was in my early 20s, and I am not going to apologize for anything. What? Well, <laughs> well you you know, yeah, because because I watched Alias for the before <laughs> performance that Victor Garber would put on every single week. I mean, it's just, you know, I, I, I think back to my early 20s and some of the decisions I made, like the reason why I saw Titanic four times in the theater. And I'm like, you know, I was single at the time, so I guess it was okay. And I never really... So there were there were two reasons you saw Titanic. In the it's, to bring it yeah, back to, to bring a it, bad, yeah, but, terrible but joke. I was <laughs> 21, not in my 40s. So. Oh, yeah. No, I know. I know. But no, Xena uh, and, and Hercules were part of the action pack. Uh, Hercules mm-hmm. started out as a series of movies and yes. then went to series, and then Xena was the spinoff. Uh, and I think more uh, more entertaining show. Uh, I, I, I think the one episode of Hercules I remember watching first run was it was actually set in the real world, and all of the actors that played villains were in a writer's room pitching <laughs> stories about their characters. That's actually pretty... It was it was a pretty... Meta for a, for a syndicated drama, you know? But Xena also had the interesting thing where you had her nemesis that actually ended up being Xena for most of a season because she broke her pelvis doing a bit for Leno. And hmm. she was out of commission for a little while. But no, it was, I mean, she had the little la-la-la-la-la thing she did. Yeah. It was actually kind of a funny show, because it was done by Sam Raimi. Yeah, and, and I got and I know Stargate SG-1, which I watched a few episodes here and there and enjoyed, and it basically took the, the concept of that... Um, James Spader, uh, role, one of the few Roland Emmerich films that I find to be really rewatchable um, in, in a way that's genuinely good. I really liked the movie. Starting. It was a good movie because you had James really Spader and Kurt Russell, and they were both yeah. really excellent. Yeah, and then you have uh, Richard Dean Anderson, so MacGyver. Um, Richard Dean Anderson is kind of kind of like Robert Urich. Like he, he'll always get work. Yeah. Um, maybe Robert Urich rest in peace but um like you know and, and the show is pretty good but the show the show that was another that was another movie who 
whose concept was made for a television show. Like, you know, you have this thing that can transport you to other worlds. Where are we going today? I mean, we saw it on Star Trek. Back Sliders. Seasons, Sliders, which I was a show that I really liked for its first couple of seasons as well on Fox. Um, and, and shows like that. It was What I always found interesting about Xena and Hercules... And and of course in Star Trek: The Next Generation, you know, like these things not only had devoted followings, but like they people who didn't even watch the show or didn't even know the show knew Xeno Warrior Princess. Yeah. Like it made it into the the lexicon of the late '90s, you know, in the same way that people knew Friends or Seinfeld and things, even though that wasn't pulling Seinfeld numbers in terms of ratings. So it's pretty impressive that that a show that was kind of produced on the sort of, you know, second or third tier in terms of, you know, prestige as far as, you know, if you have like network as this first tier, this is kind of that second or third tier, um, had that much of an impact on the culture, you know? In the time of ancient gods... A land in turmoil cried out for a hero. She was Xena, a mighty princess forged in the heat of battle. The power. The passion. Her courage will change the world. Yeah, I, I honestly think that um, you could. This era that we're talking about is lightning in a bottle. Because as we, we talked about earlier. You know, as television evolved into the 21st century, you know, the shows that were off network were just on another channel, basically. It, it all went to cable. So syndication really in the early 2000s died out as a yeah. as a thing, because I think one of the like one of the last ones that I remember was Andromeda uh, mm-hmm. and that type of show. Yeah, Earth Final Conflict yeah. was on for a little while as well. Like I said, Stargate SG-1 and Stargate Universe, Stargate Atlantis, like probably the last gasp of that type of show. But, you know, once FX and USA and Sci-Fi and that type of channel, you know, AMC really got into it, especially with, like, The Walking mm-hmm. Dead, as you mentioned. You know, once those shows picked up the genre bandwagon, I mean... I think Battlestar Galactica, the remake, started out on NBC, but then it went onto a cable show, cable channel eventually, if I'm remembering correctly. So, you know, it was that sort of thing. And then, as science fiction and especially comic book films got more popular, you started seeing that more and more on regular television. So you don't need a syndicated Mm -hmm. 
channel to, or a or an independent production company to produce it. You know, the, the CW is going to produce its DC shows. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and um, and in the same way, it's also producing its vampire yeah. shows, and it's also producing um, good-looking teenagers uh, doing stuff that teenagers shouldn't be doing. Yeah, um, there was a spate in the '90s where the networks were trying, and, and the networks would try and fail to catch lightning in the bottle that were created by other shows on other networks. They've done this throughout time, but they tried to do it with the X Files in um in the 90s where they would uh, brimstone they, yeah uh what was the hell was the name dark skies yes. i think was the alien invasion one with uh, with megan ward um from pcu uh and um which i saw a few episodes of and genuinely enjoyed millennium uh, but millennium and, and there was a, like a very very short-lived lone gunman show uh but it never really caught on freaky links yeah you're, Freelings with Ethan. These are all on Fox, dude. Yes, <laughs> and it was all this attempt to catch something because you know you had you had an audience that was either adults who had grown up with shows by this time, like Star Trek: The Next Generation, and were still watching this type of television, or not to sound you know nasty about it like teenagers who had no life you know like the, the type of guys like you know the type of guy i was back in as a sophomore or junior in high school where i was sitting around trying to find something to watch on a saturday yeah. evening because there was nothing else i could do you know maybe i got to go to a friend's house to play video games but for the most part it was like you know highlander was on at five i think on wor and next gen was on at seven and then there was a movie on or a game or something you know so they now a lot of us have grown up and we are watching stuff on uh, we're watching the cw stuff or we're watching the walking dead if if even though i don't watch the walking dead but you know um or we're we're streaming this stuff on netflix and they they really have and and these things have found their niche um in a way uh this was this was i think if the this was like the video store for this type of yeah, show like whereas definitely. horror found its horror found its 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 footing in a big way in the video store in the 80s and a lot of people got into horror because of the video store well, yeah cuz you you um, would go and you would rent the friday the 13th or the halloweens yeah. or the the nightmare on elm streets or the phantasms or yeah waxworks and, and, i mean yeah and like I said, these were this, um, the off-network stuff and, and the internet were, were like really, this was some of the first uh, stuff that people like really stuck with and really went to these places to um, that wasn't uh, porn. And I don't say that as a joke. I mean, you know, if you really look at the history of the adult entertainment industry, it does have a lot, <laughs> it it kind of started some of these things with the VHS stuff and the internet. Well, the reason stuff, why you know, VHS but... won over beta is because that's where the porn industry went. Let's, yeah, let's I be mean, honest. Like, you know, Same with Blu-ray. We gotta, yeah, we got to give adult entertainment some credit for some stuff. And the internet is, a, I mean, like the internet is still for porn, but I mean, it's it's uh, there was a lot of of that. Uh, but but kind of second to that was kind of nerds who wanted to go and connect with other nerds because they wanted to talk about comics and they wanted to talk about Highlander or 
or Star Trek or, you know, or, or whatever. And we were, and for the longest time too, and now it's actually starting to where you can start to find stuff about this. But for the longest time, that late eighties, early nineties period on television stuff was like the stuff you couldn't find anything online about either. You might find discussion boards or stuff, but it was like for the longest time, you couldn't find shit for it on like YouTube or whatever. And now it's, they've started to kind of, people have started to upload I think technology's gotten more accessible where people found their old uh, videotapes and stuff or DVDs have come out and stuff like that. I mean, I don't know how many full episodes of She Spies are on YouTube, but I mean... <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I think there's a certain kind of garage band quality to them as well because there's something... There's something really cool about discovering something when you're in your teens and your early 20s that you can never really recapture. I mean, you can you can find I mean like The Walking Dead is a phenomenon that everybody can get into, right? Uh yeah. because it's on a major cable network, AMC, uh which I I found for those of you who don't know, AMC originally was American Movie Classics. He used to show oh, a shit ton of John Wayne stuff. And I and I had a friend that worked for them for a little while on their like business oh. side. And he informed me that the reason why they went with AMC was much like how like Kentucky Fried Chicken became KFC because then you can brand it essentially. Yeah. So, you know, and and I'm not saying I'm trying to say something here but I'm really not trying to sound like a pretentious douchebag while I say it. Because there are more people invited to the table now, if you say, I am into The Walking Dead, or I am into The Flash, or I am into Riverdale, or I am into Supergirl, or any, you know, I'm into Pretty Little Liars, I'm into whatever's on Freeform, which used to be... Uh, Emily, family. which used to be the Family Channel, Fox uh, Family, which used to be the Family, which used to be the Christian Broadcasting. By the way, if we're going to talk about syndication and we're going to talk about channels like that and cable and stuff, Zorro on the Family Channel was the shit. That was a great <laughs> TV show. It is on DVD. I must get it. But anyways, I'll have to check that. Uh, out. The dude from that played Dracula in the Monster Squad is Zorro. Mm. He is amazing. I'll have to check that um, out. It's very cheesy. It's got a very synth score because it was the late. Yeah. But to me, saying you're into a show now is basically like saying I watch sports because just about everybody's doing it. Yeah. And and I and I think Twilight played a lot a, a big factor into that because it wasn't only teenagers reading twilight there were 40 something moms that were lusting after teenage boys which is that's a, why we have 50 shades which of is apparently socially acceptable but back in the late 80s and early 90s this these were the shows that you watched that no one else was into except maybe one or two of your friends yeah, and I think I think you use the phrase garage band, and I think that's a really appropriate analogy because there was this sense that whereas when you watched something on ABC, NBC, or CBS, 
you knew it was going to be on because it was advertised like crazy in TV Guide. You saw the commercials for it. Your parents watched those networks. So watching Family Ties. Yeah. Or being able to stay up to watch Cheers. Mm -hmm. You know, that wasn't... Everybody watched those shows. Everybody has memories of watching those shows and things like that. So it's like... It's like if we're going to go with 80s stuff, it's like picking up a Van Halen album or a Springsteen album or something. You know, great stuff. But you're not the only person who's ever heard Van Halen. Yeah. Here, this is like you very often, unless unless you like really were, were kind of paying attention, very often some of these shows were stuff you kind of stumbled upon. Yeah, because they were syndicated. For your first episode of So it. they yeah. weren't on Sundays at, four, at 9. On ABC yeah. or and, whatever. Yeah, and and um and like Star Trek: The Next Generation is kind of an exception to that because I knew that was coming because it was advertised on like the VHS for like the Voyage Home, yeah, and some of the other things. So you would see trailers for it. Um, Highlander was one that I knew was coming because by then there were commercials airing for it. But like stuff like Freddy's Nightmares or the War of the Worlds series or Friday the Thirteenth the series and and some of these other ones. Like I think it was just. Flipping the channels, being home at like one thirty, two o'clock in the afternoon on a Saturday, and and I don't know, they weren't running Star Search for the umpteenth time, so it's like, oh, what is this? And and it was almost like flipping the dial because you were listening to the radio because there was nothing else on, and finding a band that maybe a few people had heard of, or like, or or you you were hanging out with somebody and they were listening to it, like, hey, listen to this, and. It's gonna sound. It's gonna come off as really, really hipstery because it's like, oh, I liked it before; it was cool. But you did feel like it was yours. Yeah. And when you found that other person who liked it, and this is actually, believe it or not, the show that I always felt like this for me was Degrassi Junior High because I was like, I was thought this is, I was the only person who knew that show existed. And like, I found kids in my high school who were like, who had watched it, and we were like, do you remember that show? But like, you found that other person who liked it, and it's like all of a sudden, it's like, wow, like you actually make a connection over it. As opposed to, you could kind of talk with the cute girl down in the in your class about Friends, yeah, and because everybody watched Friends, you know. So you, you could you talked about her with her about Ross and Rachel because like she's paying attention to me for once, you know. So. Well, the the other thing is, you know, for the, there were people that were what I would call a little more organized, and these were the people that were reading magazines like Starlog and Fangoria. Uh, where you would get, uh, you know, like, like I knew the Flash TV series was coming uh, because of a commercial during the All-Star game in 1990, but very quickly Star Log and Comic Scene were talking about it. The same with the Superboy TV series. Yeah, I probably, f and I probably knew about it because of, like, Entertainment Tonight. Yeah, and, like and, that, and, so. and that is something to, to mention is that my mom was a religious watcher of Entertainment Tonight. That woman would... Mm -hmm. So were my parents. And so I, even when she wasn't around, would watch it because every once in a while you would see something kind of cool. Like, this yeah. This is... It's, it's kind of like the, the devil in that Kids in the Hall skit. Oh, it's a show about me. It's a show that says something about me. And, yeah. you know, but, but there is that kind of cool quality of being 13, 14 years old and just getting into the Nightmare on Elm Street films, and suddenly there's a television series. 
And you're like, oh, wow. And Friday the 13th, because it was edgy for the time. You know, and all these things were filmed in Canada if it wasn't filmed mm-hmm. in Florida. So so it's like, yeah. you know, I think that's another reason why I want to move to Canada at some point, uh, outside of for obvious current <clears throat> sociopolitical reasons, uh, is because it just looked like a cool place to be where weird things happened. So... <laughs> Our generation has seen more of Vancouver than any generation. <laughs> Holy crap! It's just like you know, and it, and it goes on because Smallville was filmed, you know, in Van near, uh, in, you know, in British Columbia and all yeah. that. So it's just like, and that's where the Flash and all them. So it's just like, I, I, I don't, and it, even some of the, like the the Sci Fi Channel shows that uh, were Canadian shows that they start showing. It's really weird. Now sci-fi can say a show's brand new, even though it's four years old and was originally aired in yeah, Canada. Yeah, right. I, I, I don't know how you can say it's new. It's I, I guess it says, if I haven't seen it, it's new to much. me. <laughs> so, but no, there, there was that feeling of, wow, this is kind of a neat thing. And I'm not talking about things like Super Force, which was just mm-hmm. terrible. Uh, the, the, the stripper from summer school has, is, is on a motorcycle with Larry B. Scott as his, uh, you know, guy running the control room. They actually, man, they were ahead of their time. Larry B. Scott kind of made a mini career out of playing kind of that guy. He, he (laughs) had like, he, he never fully shed the Lamar from Revenge of the Nerds thing, I don't know. Have you seen Fear of a Black Hat? No, I haven't. But like, but like, I know that for a while he would pop up on some of these shows as kind of the sidekick guy. Um, I, I yeah. Dustin Wynn from Twenty One Jump Street, not the Batman writer, um, was on VIP, the Pamela Anderson show that aired in the mid nineties. Is kind of the same guy, kind of the. The, you know, that, and that's where some of this, you know, the, the things that we see, like, you know, uh, I think Cisco Ramon owes a lot to some of these types of characters. Cisco Ramon sometimes the, the best reason to watch The Flash, by the way. I love Cisco, <laughs> man. I just love this. But, but yeah, it was just this, um, some of these took hold better than others, and um, it was a lot of, and because you were you were playing for syndication, you weren't as bogged down with network crap. You could throw stuff against the wall and see what sticks. A lot of these mm-hmm. were in the days before tight continuity in your storytelling. So some of these shows, you could go in and out of episodes. I've not seen every episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. But there are a number of episodes where you don't necessarily have to know the continuity. You just have to know the crew. You know, um, Tales from the Dark Side was an anthology series. So there really mm-hmm. was no continuity to it. And I think that... With a great movie. Yeah, I haven't seen that in so long. <laughs> and what's cool is that, that that worked to their advantage because you didn't you didn't necessarily always know when it was on. Like, like You kind of eventually remember, but sometimes you were like, it was almost like a surprise, even though it was on the same time every time. It was a surprise that it was, it was on at that point. You were like, oh, I can sit here and watch this. Um, and it was interesting. Um, later in its life, Wizard would cover cover a lot of movies and television, but it didn't really 
cover this stuff as heavy as, say, Starlog or some of the other. And the Wizard was like the one magazine that I was getting. Yeah, w- Wizard Wizard would cover genre mm-hmm. shows. So you had, and especially Andy Mangles. Uh, column which was there like Hollywood Heroes uh, which eventually jumped over to Hero Illustrated Uh, but they would talk about time tracks Mm -hmm. and they would talk about you know that they were doing this science fiction thing or that science fiction thing and oh they're doing this comic book and oh the X-Men animated series is about to hit Starlog Starlog for a, for like eighty seven eighty eight seemed to be really focused on Star Trek: The Next Generation. <laughs> but that is also there is an issue of Starlog that I have found, which I'm very happy about, uh, that I bought with my confirmation money in 1989. Uh, I bought it because Batman was on the cover. Uh, because I, it was 1989 yeah. when the movie had to come out. But that's where I learned uh, who Dick Durock was. I learned that there was this movie with Amanda Pays called Leviathan. Is that the one with Peter Weller? Uh, I, mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, I also found out that there was this weird movie with Bronson Pinchot and John Larroquette and Stuart Second Pankin. Sight. Second <laughs> Sight. Which... So Starlog covered it's it's not that they just covered like the the typical science fiction. They would talk about anything that was even remotely science fiction related. Fangoria I never read, but I but from the, the, the gist I get from it is that Fangoria was part like articles about movies, but also part articles on how special effects are done in I was gonna films. say I can probably ask the Jack and Eddie boys about that and Yeah. <laughs> hey Luke <laughs> But I just it, it it's like one of those things where I know you hate the song, but every time I hear the song Waiting for a Star to Fall <laughs> Suddenly, it's 6 o'clock in the morning, I'm in the 8th grade, I'm getting ready for school, and this is the soundtrack of my life. You're right. But, but it's You're just right. like those things. And these shows are like that too, where... I remember the house on 1470 Promise Lane. I remember where the television was. I can remember watching certain things. And was it night? Was it was it mm-hmm. afternoon? Was it Saturday? Was it Sunday? Am I up in my sister's room watching this stuff because no one wants because my dad's downstairs watching golf? Yeah. Uh, you know that kind of thing. And I think you had a little bit over me in that you you were also into sports to a yeah. certain extent. Uh, both baseball and hockey, so year-round you had something to watch. Yeah, and, and <laughs> baseball especially, because PIX ran the Yankees and WR ran the Mets, so <laughs> it would be stuff that was on during rain delays, or it was stuff that was on before or after games, too. And mm-hmm. I have, like, I liberated a pile of videotapes from my parents' house back in April that um, were blanks that I recorded things on, and in some cases I know what's on them, and in some cases it's like... I don't know. I mean, for all I know, it's like five episodes of Herman's Head and a 
you know, whatever. Ooh. But um, but there might be some of this stuff on there because I know for a while I was taping Star Trek: The Next Generation on a regular basis. I know there are a couple of tapes of the original series where I taped the episodes I absolutely wanted. You know, like Space Seed or Piece of the Action or City on the Edge of Forever. Like the ones that like you were the Menagerie, which was the you know, the two parter. You know, so it was like the ones that everybody like remembers and stuff like that. So like I have to go through these things. But I think now these are becoming a little more common. On some cases they are on D V D. Um and 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 as you mentioned in a couple of places uh, in the episode here, some of them are really cheap too. Yeah, buying the entire series of Friday the Thirteenth, the series, mm-hmm. allow myself to introduce myself uh, <laughs> uh, for thirty bucks. I mean, how can you? Tales from the Dark Side was the same yeah. way. It was like thirty forty dollars, and I think the reason why you're seeing this is because the company... I think one of the reasons why they haven't been out before is I get the feeling that the rights to these shows are kind of a legal quagmire. Probably. And who owns the production company and who owns the rights yeah, to them? So it's not as clear as yes, Star Trek. It's not like Star Trek where Paramount has always owned Star Trek and always will own Star Trek. Yeah. And they kind of lease it out yeah. to a network. It's like Panzer Davis... Uh, that produced Highlander. Highlander, uh, and boy, with I called for the Highlander catalog. I heard from those people every <laughs> week. Every week they would call and ask if I wanted to buy something. It led me and my friends to joking that we we, we we would we would buy something and suddenly because we were on some kind of like super status with them because we bought so much stuff. Adrian Paul actually shows up. Uh, to to hand deliver it to you, but it's like when when you get you know, the it, one catalog and you get every catalog. Like I, yeah. I got, I, yeah, I I got the the one clothing catalog, and suddenly I'm getting international mail. I have a friend that got that on purpose. Um, long story, but the but the thing about that, like I was saying though, is I think some of these shows. Like, I'm pretty sure Hercules and Xena are locked up in a particular company. Mm-hmm. Uh, but some of these were like fly-by-night stuff. Though, recently, it has been revealed that Nightman is coming to DVD. I would imagine that um, a lot like some movie, independent movies, um, or low-budget movies made in the 80s, they have fallen into the hands of various distribution companies like yes. how Lionsgate owns a crap ton of rights to 80s movies um, because it bought up the libraries of companies like Artisan, which was the company that put out the Blair Witch Project that also owned for a while, owned the rights to movies like Dirty Dancing because Vestron went out of business after Dirty Dancing. with it. And so it's like, so in some cases, like we're New World, you know, and and yeah. some cases these are pretty clear cut. It's just that somebody like that owns it, and it, but it might be that one producer, or it might be some property like uh, we talk about comics properties, uh, like ROM or the Micronauts or something, where like one person owns part of it, another person owns part of it. These two people aren't talking to one another, um, or one person's dead, and 
you have to go through the you estate, have to go through the estate and, then, and then Todd McFarlane's involved, but that's just Miracle Man. <laughs> well, here the other thing too is that when these shows were on the air, the residuals that go to the actors. So, and you have like the you know the actors. The Screen Actors mm-hmm. Guild, the Screenwriters Guild, the Directors Guild, you know, all of these people are owed money for future rights, so how are you going to get through yeah, that? And it, it, yeah, and that's been the case with a lot of network shows from the 80s, uh, especially the ones that get held up because of music rights, because they weren't thinking that far yeah. ahead, you know? Yeah, I, I, I really want um, Cold Case to be released again on 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 dvd but holy crap the music rights yeah. alone would kill yeah you know when you do an entire episode with rocky horror music yeah. you're 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 talking a pretty good you know a pretty penny in terms of licensing and such but you can't do those episodes without that music it's true because it's so tied to the flashbacks. There was one that was set in the summer of 1994, and I was almost crying watching it with all the music they yeah, were playing. And, and so we'll see. We'll see how many. Because, like I said, if they're available on YouTube, means that somebody has uploaded something off of an old videotape that they found. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad I had had you on for this because I knew that going through these is that we we've often joked that we had the same childhood childhood and, yes. and i knew i and i knew that even though you had cable and the one difference between the two of us uh goes back to my first episode of this series this miniseries which was movies and that you know you can really talk to that speak to that um hbo phenomenon of of certain movies being rerun and rerun and rerun to death um whereas i really can't but there were a number of movies on syndication that i saw first time but with this um We've both referenced some of these shows um, here and there, um, and I may have not watched every episode of, um, you know, Deep Space Nine or Hercules or Xena or anything like that, but it, it makes for a conversation that only certain people kind of among our generation really can have with one another, and, and there's this, like, sweet spot of the 80s and 90s in syndication that... I, that maybe another generation has it somewhere else. You know, I don't want to say like, oh, this is never going to happen again because there's, you know, I don't know, Don and somebody else could sit down and they could talk about like, you know, somewhere on some network and something and they'd have the same exact conversation. So um, I'm, gl- I'm glad we got together. Yeah, but then they'd be talking about things like Big Bad Beetleborgs. Yeah. <laughs> or... Big Bad Beetleborgs. Things that are in my head and never leaving. So before, maybe the Colonel Sunshine of the Spotless Mind up in this place. So before they cart you off while you're singing that song, <laughs> the men in the white coats will be there soon. Um, where where can uh, where can everybody find you on the uh, on the on the internets? Fortressofbailey2.com has all of my shows. It's the easiest place to go. Go there, you'll find something. And uh, you can find me on the next episode. There is one show that I kind of mentioned a couple of times, but I kind of skirted around because I'm saving the last episode of It Came From Syndication for just this uh, series as well as a wrap-up of the show. Uh, It was... um, If Star Trek The Next Generation was the show that set the mark for um, 
shows in syndication that could really have a lot of success. This show overshot the mark and became a worldwide phenomenon in the 90s. And you really can't talk about syndicated shows without talking about the David Hasselhoff classic, Baywatch. So what I'll be doing next episode is devoting an entire episode to Baywatch, especially the first syndicated season of the show. Um, and the first few episodes of that season, which, with, which, which featured an actress who had been on a show that I previously watched, Charles in Charge, and that's Nicole Eggert. So we'll be, I'll be talking about the first few Nicole Eggert episodes of Baywatch, because those are the ones I remember the most. Until then, um, you can find me on Twitter at popaff, P-O-P-A-F-F, and you can um, leave a comment on the Facebook page, send me an email. And as always, thank you for listening, and take care. our programming for today. We welcome any comments you may have regarding our programming. It Came From Syndication is located at popcultureaffidavit.com with our email at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com and Twitter at popf. Pop Culture Affidavit is a member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Some of today's programming has been mechanically reproduced. It Came From Syndication wishes you a pleasant good night and good morning. <laughs>